Well, it's good to be here. We missed you guys last week. Um, for those of you that didn't hear, like, our horror story as a family, I had, a, I had to leave, well, I had to get up at 4 a.m. last Monday to go to uh, Colorado. They changed, it's a long story, they changed my flight so I could be here for Sunday. Um, my son had a friend sleeping over, so they were camping out in his bedroom, and we, that was like our big tactic, was like, Abram will wake up to a friend, and so the fact that mommy's gone for like four days isn't going to be a big deal. So I finally get to sleep around 11.30 at night, set my alarm for 4 a.m., I'm literally going to fly, I had, a, I had to have a layover, it wasn't a direct flight, get off the plane, drive an hour to Colorado Springs from Denver, and do a two-hour session that I had to teach, so I was like, okay, I need to be mentally, so I finally fall asleep, I'm probably asleep for an hour, my bedroom light flashes on, and my son is screaming, I want my mom, and I'm like, ah, just shut out the light, shut out the light, so we try to get him in the bed, and we think this is going to be a smooth transition, just like lay there and go to sleep, please, then he's like conflicted, I want to snuggle you, but I want to to the sleepover in my room. Come sleep on my floor with me. No, no. That's not an option. I'm getting up at four. I'm not laying on your floor for the next three hours. That's all I have for. <laughs> so we were greatly conflicted. God bless my husband. How many of you know he's a saint? He is a saint. I hear him just so casually and willingly say, I'll lay on your floor, Abram. I'm like, bless the Lord, all my soul. <laughs> I'll lay on your floor, Abram. I was like, oh. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I finally got to go to sleep, and then my alarm went off at 4, and like I said, I got off and had to do two hours, but it was a good time, and so I'm happy to be back here. I missed being here last week. Um, We are going to do one of the most foundational uh, messages for our community. So if you've been here for a good period of time, you've heard this message before, but I encourage you, don't tune out, because I've been in the prayer movement for, oh boy, <laughs> I'm going to age myself here, like almost 20 years now. That's scary. I started praying pretty young. <laughs> but um, I've been in the prayer movement, and honestly, this message, there's no other message that excites me and provokes me and gives me vision and alignment perpetually. So if you've heard this message because you've been with us, I encourage you don't tune out and think, oh, I know about day and night prayer. All of us can be challenged and provoked to align our hearts with the biblical mandate. Um, But secondly, if you're new to this community, I would say this is a very, for you to understand the community that you're a part of and what the Lord has called us to do um, in this geographic location, it really isn't even about our Sunday gatherings that you're here and a part of. It's about us as a house of prayer. So I'm going to give us some biblical context. Um, You can turn to the book of Acts. We're not going to start there, but that's going to be the most extensive amount of scripture where you'll park yourself instead of moving sporadically with me through the Old Testament. Um, First and foremost, um, prayer as, as people, prayer is our primary vocation. I don't care if you're called to government. I don't care if you're called to medicine. I don't care what you're called to in life. If you look biblically at the word of God, and I'll give you a couple of passages that you can look into, is that as a believer in Jesus Christ, your primary calling is to the place of prayer. So if you're here today, even if you're studying for a specific field and you're identifying yourself with that calling, I'm called to education. I'm called to compassion. I'm, I'm going to say a blanket statement, and it applies to each and every single one of us, is that the place of prayer is our primary calling. And as a believer in Jesus Christ, it's where you find identity and fulfillment. Because if you guys know the passage of Scripture in Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus is asking Peter, he's saying, who do men say that? I am. And and Peter replies and he says, you are Christ, son of the living God. Jesus replies back to Peter and he says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. And then he goes on to say, and upon this rock, I will build my church. Do you guys realize that that is actually the first mention of the word church in the New Testament? This is before book of Acts. This is the first mention of the word church there in the New Testament. And when he says church, he actually uses the word ecclesia. The word ecclesia doesn't necessarily mean a gathering of people to have potlucks and a gathering of people to uh, have a social committee so that we can fulfill all of your social needs. The word ecclesia literally means to be a corporate assembly of people the ruling, governing body in the earth. 
simple, but it's also pretty profound. If you want to know, let's be honest, if you look at the churches in the Church of America, we all tote very different mission statements. We all have very different vision statements of what we're looking to do and be in society. But according to Jesus, he says that you're an assembling together. So that's the other thing too, is we clearly have to understand that in the heart of God, as believers in Jesus Christ, the assembling together of the saints is important. I understand that before Christ, that we are the body of Christ, you know, as individuals, that we are the living temple, that we have relationship with him individually. And I, I have close friends and loved ones that are like, no, I don't go to a church because I am the church. Well, according to scripture, and it's, it's assembling together of believers. So if you're not assembling together with people that can provoke you, inspire you, challenge you, encourage you, That is actually the understanding of the New Testament church is the assembling together. And it is the governing body in the earth. Let me ask you a question. You don't have to give me a show of hands. Is the church functioning as the governing body in the earth? As the ruling order in the earth? And this, and I'll give you a very practical application of this. When David, most of us know the passage of scripture when David said in Psalms, he said, um, I served the will of God in my generation. Some translations might say, I served the purpose of God in my generation. Often, many of us think of it as, I want to serve the purpose of God in my generation. I want to serve the will of God. And it's kind of an ambiguous idea. What is the purpose of God in my generation? What is the will of God in my generation? But do you understand the actual language when David said that he fell asleep once he had served the will of God or the purpose of God? Do you know what it is? It's the understanding that there is a king and that he has a will. He has a desire and he has a purpose. And it's the understanding that as sons and daughters, we understand that and we establish it in the earthen realm. Is that whatever is the desire of the king that we are used to, the word is actually to administrate, to govern and to set forth. So it's not a random understanding. If you're kind of one of those people, I was that in my teenage years. I want to serve the purpose of God. You know, weeping. It was mysterious to me. What is the purpose of God? It's literally that you are used to establish and administrate the will of God in the earth. That's powerful. But this is the understanding of the ecclesia. But we also find the words of Jesus two times. Let me give you the passage of scripture because we're actually not going to turn there. This is my introduction. Sorry, my introduction will go the first 30 and then my body will be the last 15. <laughs> um, in Matthew 21, 13 and John 2, 15 is actually where Jesus is declaring, but he's actually quoting Isaiah 50, uh, 56. But he, it's Jesus declaring, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. The words of Jesus, that was his declaration in the temple. Do we understand that two separate occasions, they're not actually the same instance or the same story. On two separate occasions, Jesus came into the temple and he cleansed it. He came in with a rebuke declaring, my house shall be called a house of prayer. He was laying claim to what is the function and what is the identity of his house. And in some respect, then the challenge then becomes, if we're not functioning as the house of prayer, it's not truly his house. Because he lays claim and he has ownership of the house of prayer. He says, this is the intended purpose of my house, is to be a house of prayer. And if you study the original language, that word prayer literally means intercession. It's, it's once again, yes, all of us as, as believers, we've been, I think we've covered uh, abiding in Christ for two weeks, John 15, important, vital, foundational. As believers, we are called to the place of communion and fellowship with God. That is, if you're kind of like wanting to wrap your mind around what is prayer, it's communication and conversation with God. Very simple, not mysterious, not profound. And really, intercession moves into the place of of decreeing the will of God, of calling for the will of God to be established in the earthen realm. And so the house of prayer in the original language literally means a house of intercession on behalf of. It goes back to this understanding of the ecclesia of to govern and administrate the will of God in the earth. That is our identity as believers. 
And so we find Jesus declaring that concerning my house shall be called a house of prayer. Now, if Jesus said it, it's something that we should give attention to. It's something that we should heed. We also find the words of Jesus. How many of you guys are familiar with Mary of Bethany and her sister Martha? Martha was busy serving, busy facilitating the, all of the logistics of the dinner party. And Mary's found literally just sitting at the feet of Jesus. She looks lazy. She looks useless. I mean, she's just sitting there listening to Jesus. And it was actually in the midst of this rebuke uh, that the, Jesus had for Martha, because Martha comes complaining. And let's just, let's just qualify all of this by saying there's nothing wrong with that servant heart, the doing. It's needed, and the church can't function without it. I think more Jesus was addressing the criticism that Martha had in her heart is the place of criticizing the position and the posture of another. So Jesus actually addresses her and he says, one thing is necessary. This is like such a simple passage of scripture. One thing is necessary. And Mary has chosen the good part and it will not be taken from her. I, you know, I know this might sound overly simplistic. I just spent like four days with missionaries that are going to go to Muslim countries, to Yemen, to Istanbul, like all of those places. And to be honest with you, from all of my years in ministry, I can honestly say I think every mental, emotional crisis, every challenge that we face, every challenge in ministry, culture, the simplicity of one thing is necessary. The life of prayer will solve a thousand other issues in your life. It's simple. It's almost insulting, kind of like, well, you're, what are you saying? I don't have a prayer life? No, but even in the place of having a prayer life, the answer is continually returning to that posture in prayer. Whether it's an identity issue, your answer is in prayer. I understand I sound like I'm overly simplifying. You know, there's people that I understand legitimately have struggles with depression, need medication. I say, take your medication and position yourself in the place of prayer. Because that medication you may need for a season, but you're going to find an inward transformation on the inside where you get rewired by the Holy Spirit. And that even if it's a chemical imbalance, there can be a physical healing that takes place. One thing is necessary. I don't care if you're stuck in your job. I don't care if you think I need to get out of this company. There's no room for potential or growth. I'm going to tell you, sow your life in the place of prayer. That's where promotion comes from. I know it sounds simple, but you know what happens? The Holy Spirit works on your character. He works on your perception. He works on who you are as an individual, and then he elevates you. Look at the life of Joseph. The guy's stuck in a prison, and because he keeps his heart posture right before the Lord, there's no stopping him. The individual that sows their life in the place of prayer cannot be stopped. There's absolutely nothing that can stop them. You can find this, the, the book of Daniel. I encourage every single one of you, if you're in the place of academia, study the life of Daniel. Daniel was called and used in governing. Daniel was highly educated. He was an intelligent man. But he did not allow any of those things to become a substitute for the place of prayer. And because of the place of prayer, it is why he was elevated. It's why he was influential. But not only was he influential, the, the, the system of Babylon did not influence his heart. See, and that's the place of prayer. It causes our heart to come under the influence of the kingdom. And that there's no other kingdom that will influence in, in, us and dominate us and determine our life and course and destiny. The, the story of Daniel is powerful because he could have relied upon human reason, human intellect, human ability. He had the charisma. He had all the credentials. But what do we find about Daniel? Three times a day. Three times a day it said that he set his face to seek the Lord. And he did not move. That position and that posture, Daniel took it for about 70 years of his life. It was his 80s. He was in his 80s when finally release came from Babylonian captivity. Talk about having a steadfast heart, a constant heart set in a direction. But you know what? It gave him the authority to be the influencing factor 
rather than being under the influence of the Babylonian system. Look at the life of Daniel. So we have Jesus who declared, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. For those of you that aren't familiar, in um, 1050 BC is where we actually find the origin of the tabernacle of David. Just really quickly for anybody that may not be familiar, the tabernacle of David was night and day worship and prayer. It was legit. There was worship music happening continually. There was singers and musicians ministering before the presence of God. So this is actually instituted by David. One of the most profound things about this is that this reality was never known or instituted in the earthen realm. I mean, we all know this is the reality of heaven. We know this is what's happening around the throne of God day and night. But Daniel got a glimpse of something, and he was used to release this reality in the earth in his generation. Think about that. For those of you in this place, what if the Lord were to use you to establish something that had never been heard or thought of or had even entered into the mind of man? That's insane. That's crazy. So we have uh, David. In 1050 BC, it's actually the the first understanding or mention of the tabernacle of David. How many of you guys know it actually, he had 288 prophetic singers and 4,000 musicians that ministered before the Lord. First Chronicles 15 through 17 is actually where you can find um, the mention and the understanding of that. And this passage of scripture is what's declared, to make petition, to give thanks and to praise the Lord our God day and night. It was perpetual. It did not stop. Now, oftentimes, people will look at the tabernacle of David and think, well, that was one expression, that was one time in history, and it never happened again. That is absolutely untrue. In the Old Testament, after the tabernacle of David was instituted, you know what happened? There were several times that Israel fell away from the Lord. They, they had the same backsliding cycle that many of us are familiar with, kind of our heart alive and awakened and we're walking with the Lord and then our heart grows dull. So Israel, you can actually find that seven times after the time of David, night and day prayer was instituted. And what that means is that there was kings during those times that basically recognized we've departed from the Lord. And how many of you guys have been involved or a part of solemn assemblies that have taken place, you know, in our generation or this period of time, oftentimes what we'll find is groups or um, even geographic locations of people returning to the Lord, solemn assemblies that, you know, we're not living life the way God has intended it to be, so let's repent and return to him. But what's beautiful about these times in the Old Testament is not only did they call for a sacred assembly in return to the Lord, but they pretty much said from that point is we are not continuing with business as usual. We're going to go back to this divine order. We're going to go back to this way in this pattern that God has intended and designed. He desires to have his dwelling amongst men. So you actually find, so Tabernacle of David is instituted in 1050, and I'm going to give you for your own time of study that you can look into it. Um, 1010 BC, Solomon. 896 BC, Jehoshaphat. 853 BC, Joash. 726 BC, Hezekiah. 635 BC, Josiah, 538 BC, Zerubbabel, and 446 BC is Nehemiah. This is all just in the Old Testament. Leaders that understood that this is the rightful order and the rightful way that we have been called to relate to and be his dwelling amongst the earth. Now, for those of you that don't know, if you look at all of these leaders, it's actually extraordinary. You find that the connection between them setting right order of the church operating in night and day worship and prayer is that there was military endorsement that was all of a sudden upon them. It, it completely changed their military stra- uh, status and the strength that they had against their enemies. It changed their whole entire financial system, it changed everything about their society and them as a people, where they went from a place of defeat and despair, where they went from a place of even chaos and feeling as though in some ways God was opposed to them, to a place where they're now rightfully aligned with the heart of God, they're in right relationship and right order, and the blessing of God is released upon them as people. So this is Old Testament. How many of you guys are familiar in Amos 9, 1 through 11, this, it's a lengthy prophecy, 
But in short, what is prophesied in Amos is, is after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. This was prophesied in Amos, but also then in the book of Acts. If you go to Acts chapter 15, 13, 13 through 18, we find the same exact prophecy of the rebuilding of the tabernacle of David. What does that look like? What is that understanding? So it's an Old Testament reality, but let me just say this. We're going to look at the book of Acts today. Hopefully you've turned there. How many of you guys know that the book of Acts is the birthing of the New Testament church? So let's just look at this. We just looked at eight times, including David, that night and day worship and prayer was instituted in the Old Testament. We, we understand what actually was released and the reality that was known in the earth and the blessing of God that was upon them. But then if you look at the, the birthing of the church in the book of Acts, we're actually going to find they operated in the same divine order of their understanding was that they were a house of prayer. The reality of the book of Acts as a praying community. How many of you guys have looked closely at the book of Acts? I encourage you, go chapter by chapter through the book of Acts. Because what you'll actually find is the church of Jesus Christ has never been more triumphant. The church of Jesus Christ has never had a stronger witness, has never seen more souls saved, has never seen the exponential increase of the kingdom of God than in the book of Acts. And the reason that that is, is that in the book of Acts, they were functioning as their identity as a praying community. They were living out, my house shall be called a house of prayer. And if you look literally passage by passage, the understanding and the expression of that community as being a praying community. And so I challenge us this, as we look at the book of Acts, that if we want to be the New Testament church that God has intended, designed, and ordained, it comes through the understanding and the expression of being a praying community. You know, how many of you guys have ever scratched your head and said, where is the God of the Bible? Like, I read about the God of the Bible, but I don't see the church functioning in that realm of supernatural strength and endorsement. You know, the answer comes from the place that when we're leaning upon natural resource in order to build the kingdom of God, we will lack the supernatural endorsement of heaven. And ultimately, what we've seen in the Church of America is we've seen what man can do. We've seen what marketing can do. (laughs) We've seen, you know, I recently, I, I forwarded it to my husband. Somebody sent me this article about, like, to be a pastor in the United States in this generation, and it went through like the list of, you have to have a business mind to be able to take care of all the finances. You have to be socially etiquette in order to meet all the you know, social needs of the, it went through like the list of, if you're not charismatic and dynamic in this, and if you can't do this, and if you can't do that, none of it had anything to do with the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Because <laughs> we're looking for a lot of things from the church. How many of you guys know the, the, the revivals that took place in New England? It was actually said of Jonathan Edwards that he was a horrible pastor. You know, it was. He, like, never did pastoral visitation. You know, like, when somebody had deceased. <laughs> Have you read this? This is great. It's like, <laughs> no, it says that he, like, if somebody was deceased, he never even visited the family. He, like, was largely out of touch with the people, with their names. Like, he didn't know. He, he just didn't know. But when the dude would stand up to preach, undeniably they would say the glory of God would come. Because instead of him giving himself to a thousand other things, he was devoting himself to eight hours a day in prayer and fasting and the study of the word. He understood one thing is necessary. One thing is necessary. And can I just say to you, when Jesus declared one thing is necessary, for the rest of us, we live for the, from the reality of almost like one thing is optional. Nothing else is optional. There's demands in our lives. There's things that we must fulfill. There's things in the eyes of man that we feel like we need to do to make ourselves legitimate, to make ourselves appear a certain way. And so prayer becomes the optional component. That prayer becomes kind of the, if I have time and if there's an abundance or, you know, all of these other things that prayer then, instead of understanding from the reality that prayer is the one necessary thing and that everything comes from that place. Let's look really quickly at Acts. Acts chapter 15, verse 1. 
So we have Acts chapter 1. We know that Jesus gave them the command, go and tarry. So what did they do? They went up to the upper room, and they went there out of obedience, right? I just want to address in our community, I'm not saying any one person has this. This is a broad, sweeping mindset in our generation, is this understanding of almost what, what is legalism, what is religion, what is lawlessness, like what are the boundary lines of almost like prayer? Well, I don't want to be legalistic. Can I just say something to you? They did not necessarily say, the Holy Spirit came upon me and a spirit of prayer came, so I went and tarried in the upper room. He gave them a command. He simply said, go tarry there. And the extraordinary thing is that when they responded to the command, what do we find? There was an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that came. See, somehow in our uh, modern Western mindset, we've adapted an understanding of if I pray just simply out of obedience or even out of obligation, that's religious works. And we've adapted somehow a thinking that I will pray when the Holy Spirit gives me unction. I will pray when I feel like this burning sensation in my chest driving me and I just can't resist it any longer. It's the spirit of prayer. I'll respond to the spirit of God. What we actually find biblically is they responded to a command. They positioned themselves there and because they positioned themselves, then the Holy Spirit came. How many of you guys know Luke 18? Are you guys familiar with the widow? It talks about an adversary that is basically pursuing her. What she does is it says she goes before an unjust judge. I'm giving you the abbreviated version because we are running out of time. (laughs) She goes before an unjust judge. And what does it start out by saying in Luke 18? It says, pray always and never lose heart. It doesn't say, pray when you feel like it. Pray when you have unction. Pray when there's an anointing. Pray when you're having a good day. It gives us the command, pray always and never lose heart. That gives you the understanding there are going to be days where you lose heart. And he says, lock on to the place of prayer. He says, keep going. He doesn't say shrink back and then when a better day comes and it's going right for you. He doesn't say shrink back and then when you get a supernatural dream calling you back to the place of prayer. He is saying this should be the perpetual response of your life. Pray always. Never lose heart. Do you know what that should do? That should prepare our mind and our spirit and our emotions to understand losing heart is common. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're not like the anomaly. The devil's not like pursuing you more than he's pursuing the rest of us. People lose heart. You're going to lose heart. Don't be taken by surprise. Expect it. <laughs> Go into it saying there are going to be circumstances and delays and times where my heart isn't in it. But I make the resolve according to the word of God that it's wise to pray always and never lose heart. You know, I I cannot stand some of the theology and doctrine that we've adapted as as the Western church. We apply some of the most ridiculous principles spiritually that we would never apply in the natural or according just for logical things. Spiritual principles of the disciplines of prayer and fasting. That somehow we give the responsibility to God that he's supposed to produce something inside of us or give us an unction or a calling. Instead of understanding it's according to the word of God, it's the healthy discipline of someone that loves him. And hear me, I'll get you. I'm totally with you on this. I understand none of us want to be a legalist. None of us want to be doing things out of obligation or from a dry heart. The challenge is, is that we should have a heart that is alive in love. So therefore, prayer is the natural outworking and the natural ebb and flow of our heart. And you know what? When prayer is not that natural ebb and flow, we don't simply say, well, I don't want to be a legalist. We say, no, I need to posture my heart in that place so it can come alive in love. Our goal and our intention is not to do the outward obligation of it. Our goal is to say, I want my heart awakened and alive in love. I want to ask you, how many of you guys wake up in the morning and you just desire, just desire, you have a burning passion to brush your teeth? You don't. You brush your teeth because if you don't, they will decay. That's logic. 
No, seriously. I look at some of the most logical things that we do or decisions that we make because we understand consequence. Why can't we understand that when you cease praying, your spirit decays? Why can't we understand that we don't present our heart before the truth and the presence of Jesus Christ? There's spiritual decay. There's lies. There's, there's places that we yield our life to something less than. See, we can accept it and we can understand it. Let me just ask you, how many of you guys only put gas in your car when you have an unction? No, I just don't. I seriously don't get it. Anybody? And you probably run out of gas a lot on the highway. And thus, that's your prayer life. <laughs> no, we kind of think like, well, that's just so religious to, you know, go to the place of prayer. And I'm, I'm just not feeling it, so I'm going to be real. I'm going to be real. I don't feel it. So I'm not going to prayer. No, but how about get real, go to prayer, and say, my heart is dead. I am dull. And I need a touch from Jesus. Instead, you want to tote the, I'm only going to do it if I have an unction. I don't want to be religious. So you're religious about the gas in your car. You're religious about your teeth brushing. What else are you religious about? No, you're logical and you're using your God-given brain that there are certain disciplines. It's the principle of sowing and reaping right there. Whatever you sow, you're going to reap. If you sow to the flesh, you will reap of the flesh corruption. If you sow to the spirit, you're going to reap of the spirit life. So sometimes, sorry, I'm loud. I know that. You can turn me down. <laughs> I am who I am. I do what I do. Take it or leave it. <laughs> but just the, the simple place of sowing and reaping, that, just think about prayer as that. You're sowing to your spirit. You want to know something? I encourage you, position your heart in prayer until your heart comes alive. Because it will. I guarantee you, you cannot position yourself before the presence of God. And I understand day one might be a little rock and roughy, like, okay, I'm doing it. This is, I'm not feeling it. I'm not into it. But hey, I'm doing it. Okay, day two, you cannot position your heart there. In the presence of a holy God. In the presence of a pure God. In the presence of a loving God. In the presence of truth. And when you encounter that, not be transformed. There's transforming power in that place. So the number one place that we need to be and we should be is in the place of prayer. So we find out of obedience, they obeyed the command and they went to the upper room. Chapter 2, verse 1 we actually find the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This is where the outpouring began in response to this praying company there. And how many of you guys know the story? In 2.14, we actually find, I mean, I'm kind of rushing through this. I mean, we could stop on the fact that then the whole house where they were, where they were sitting was shaken. I mean, that's a house. It's just poor, weak, insignificant. It's a house. It's not a stadium. It's not a mega church. It's a house. But the Holy Spirit used a house full of people praying to birth the New Testament reality of the church. The greatest outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He came as fire. Mental note, he came as fire. He likes fire. Um, 2.14. Then we actually, <laughs> I love this. Wendy Wu, Wendy Wu one time actually said to me, she goes, you use notes when you talk? And I said, yeah, what do you think? She goes, I just always thought you just wing it. You just wing it. What? <laughs> Whatever comes to mind is just flying out. I was like, it might sound that way, but there is some thought that's put into it. <laughs> that's so good. <laughs> so we find 2.14. How many of you guys know this is when Peter gets up and preaches? I'm just going to, this is not the point of my message, but there's just too much here to pass it by. Peter preaches Jesus. That's it. Like, we're always looking for something profound and eloquent. We want to, like, appeal to people's rationale and logic and present the gospel in a creative way. How about Jesus? 
He preaches Jesus and he lays the charge upon them that he crucified, they crucified the Messiah. Whoa, talk about seeker friendly. Have you guys read it? Have you read his message? It's highly offensive. <laughs> he literally lays the charge. He's like, and you crucified. It was you. It, it was you. It was you, folk. You crucified the Messiah. There you have it. It was on you. You didn't try to make him feel good. <laughs> Build him up the 10 points of why you are amazing and successful. No, you crucified the Messiah, actually. <laughs> Says they were cut to the heart. Come on, we need a little cut to the heart. In our generation and culture. They were cut to the heart and 3,000 were added in one day. Come on, seriously, three, do we even know what that looks like? 3,000 souls are added in one day. The New Testament church just exponentially increases. And it's not because they were the wise. It wasn't because they were the eloquent. It's not because they had tremendous strategy. It's not because they had resource. It's not because they had a good marketing system. It's because they were an upper room company that positioned themselves in the place of prayer. They saw a supernatural outpouring of the Holy Spirit and then they preached Jesus and nothing but Jesus. It's simple. You know what it is as the New Testament church that we live in this Western culture? It's insulting. Because we want something more mysterious. We want something more that we can put our hand to. And he simply says, give your life to the place of prayer and just see what's born out of it. One thing is necessary. And Mary had chosen the good part. So we find that 3,000 were added in one day. I love this. Acts 2, 42. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and prayer. So they see exponential increase. They see the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. They see 3,000 added in the day. And they don't get all puffed up and excited that we are awesome. We got this. Got this. Church planting 101. I'm going to go teach it. I'm going to do my seminar. Instead, they go back to the place of prayer. They don't depart from the place of prayer. So then Acts 2, 46. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple. We actually find them. They're continuing daily in the place of prayer. It wasn't a once a week service. It was daily. They're having prayer meetings. Then we find Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer in Acts 3, 1. Then we find Peter's second sermon. Here we go, Peter. <laughs> Peter preaches again. And then in Acts 4, we find the first persecution. Uh-oh, uh-oh. There goes all of our modern theology. That if God is blessing you, it shouldn't be hard, right? Right? should all come easy. We should be the big bless me club. No, they're persecuted. In book of Acts, it's not because God departed. It wasn't because God was disciplining them. It was because they were obeying. We find persecution that's taking place. So Acts 4 is the first per persecution that takes place. He's released. Let's actually just turn there. I love this. 4.24. So the first persecution is in the beginning of chapter 4. Then we actually find that he's released from prison. And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Verse 24. So when they heard... They raised their voice to God in one accord and said, Lord, you are good. You actually find, I'm not going to read all of it. The whole rest of this chapter is their prayer meeting. It's recorded. It's the recording of what they prayed after the first persecution. How many of you guys know that we would be so messed up in our doctrine and theology, we would take like a week to wallow and be like, I don't know, God didn't endorse me. I was persecuted. I was brought into prison. I mean, we so don't have a context and an understanding. Their perpetual response was the place of prayer. Maybe they were confused. I don't know. Maybe they were perplexed. They could have been. But what we find throughout the book of Acts is they perpetually returned to the place of prayer. They never departed. So whether it was the blessing of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, we find them praying afterwards. Whether it was imprisonment and persecution, we find them praying afterwards. 
So then we actually find um, in chapter 12, if you skip ahead, this is actually like the fifth persecution. Can you say fifth persecution? Chapter 12, fifth persecution. Peter's in prison, and I love this. I love, do I love that he's in prison? Uh, chapter 12, verse 5. They constantly offered prayer to God for him. Can you say they constantly offered prayer to God for Peter while he was in prison? They obviously had a revelation of the power of prayer. They obviously were delivered from the defeatist mindset that we often have in the church. Well, I'm going to pray nothing's going to happen. The fifth persecution. That's crazy. So you actually find that they contend congenially for him in the place of prayer. And then we, how many of you guys know from that place, it's the supernatural release. An angel of the Lord. An angel comes to deliver him. You know what it is? Is that when we engage in the realm of the spirit, it releases supernatural activity. And when we, when we refuse to engage in that place, we see the lack of supernatural activity in our lives. And then what we find actually in um, uh, chapter 13, verse 1, is the first missionary journey. I love this. So it's the first missionary journey after all that they've seen of success and outpouring and all of this. It says, they ministered to the Lord and they fasted. And the Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So then we find once again, as confident as they could have been as the New Testament church for what they had seen, they didn't operate in presumption. Instead, we actually find them. They're praying and fasting. And this is where the Holy Spirit speaks to them about separating Barnabas and Paul. And then we actually find they then pray and fast again to send them off. We find the ebb and the flow of this community is in the place of prayer and fasting. We find it's their perpetual response and that they continue in that place. And so what we look at is, I mentioned to you guys Luke chapter 18. I need to close out, but for the sake of time, if you guys on your own look at Luke chapter 11, it's another parable on prayer. Luke chapter 11 is actually where we have the disciples coming to say, Jesus and saying, Jesus, teach us how to pray. And so Jesus responds, and it's the Lord's prayer that we're all familiar with. And right after that, he goes right into this parable of the persistent friend. And the persistent friend is actually the story of a man who's laying in bed. It's midnight. He's in bed with his children. Another gentleman, somebody comes to his house for bread, asking for bread. And basically, instead of turning him away, he's like, well, I don't have bread, but I know where I can find some. So he gets up at midnight. Let's just say midnight speaks of inconvenience. Our life is not about our convenience. We've made a God of convenience and pleasure. He gets up at midnight when he could, by all rightful terms, he could have been sleeping and resting. He gets up at midnight and he goes to his friend's house and he asks for bread. The principle of the story is the same here as Luke, Luke chapter 18. He's denied the first time, but he does not give up. He continues. He continues in the place of prayer. We need a new understanding of our position and our posture in the place of prayer. That it is not something that we do when it is convenient. It is not something that we do when we are inspired or have an unction to do that. It is the perpetual response of our life. And I guarantee you that if we are a praying community, that that is the womb that we see the supernatural released from. It's undeniable that that's actually what you find in the book of Acts. The most successful, and when I say successful, meaning according to seeing salvations, the, the lost save, people delivered and healed, supernatural activity is what we find in the book of Acts. And I, I guarantee you that there's those of you here that may have come to Hilltop. You may have found us because obviously we're a church community. But I think it's actually far more than that. I feel as though that we have a company of people that God has gathered here in Cambridge and in Boston. And you know what it is? It's the understanding that God wants to birth something in our region and in our generation. We're looking for something far more than an assembling together for a potluck and a clothing swap. But I really believe some of you in this place, you might actually, you may never have even heard this message before. And you're kind of like, okay, Tabernacle of David. So these people like prayer. Okay. I, I actually believe that the people that God has gathered together at Hilltop Church, it's because there's a yearning and a desire for the inbreak of his kingdom. 
And because of that, it's a hungry people. It's a hungry company of people that we're not looking to just simply get by with business as usual. But we're people that, number one, are desperate for a move of God. But number two, will take that posture and position in the place of prayer. Of saying, God, we're crying out before you. I don't have all the time, but many of you in this place know the prophetic history concerning Cambridge and Boston of revival and awakening and missionary sending. And do you want to know what prayer reveals throughout the word of God? Is that God does not move apart from man. He moves in partnership an agreement with man. And so this is what I believe. I believe God destined and ordained and established Hilltop Church. And Hilltop Church was born out of the house of prayer, Justice House of Prayer, because there's something that he desires to release in this region. And so if you are here, it is because God has called you to be a part of a praying community. Not simply to just get by, but to see his kingdom and his will administrated in the earthen realm. That there is something of the reality of Christ. How many of you guys would love to see the release of the book of Acts in our generation? How many of you guys would love to see newspapers writing about Harvard University? 3,000 are added in one day. 3,000 are saved in one day. But we have to live with the understanding that, number one, business as usual will not cut it. Our wise and strategic evangelistic outreaches to reach campuses will not cut it. What we need is the inbreak of God. And I'm going to say this to you. I don't care what people say about the move of God is going to look different in this generation. You look at history and you look at the Bible. You look at Jonathan Edwards. You look at Whitfield. You look at Finney. You have to understand that just like the book of Acts, that these people positioned themselves in a place, and it uses the word they tarried there. Literally, that, that denotes and that understanding is that it was difficult and they refused to move. I was just telling my husband that I was reading the biography on Finney. You know, oftentimes, I mean, you can see this about Edwards. You can see this about any revivalist that was used to release the kingdom of God. Is oftentimes we think... <laughs> They just woke up one day with some like mantle of revival upon them and they walked into a, a tavern or a place and all of a sudden the presence of God fell. But if you study their life, they entered into a place of wrestling and prayer. If you study their life, there was even pockets and touches of awakening that would come upon them, even to the point, if you look at Finney's life, he literally one night stayed up all night in prayer with a man, and the spirit of conviction was upon him. He almost thought he was going crazy. He was like, I'm going to get rid of anything that grieves the Holy Spirit. He went through this whole process of sanctification and consecration, of setting his heart that he would be aligned properly with the Spirit of God. Many people would look and judge and see that as religious. And somehow he was in bondage. Do you know in 2 Peter, it says, be careful of those who claiming liberty are actually slaves to their flesh. You know, we got to let go of this whole, I'm free from the law. No, he came to fulfill the law. And so because of the man Christ Jesus, you're not walking out the law in obligation. There is a love that has been awakened. So because of love, you'll go to any length. So the law is not fulfilled because of rules. The law is naturally fulfilled because of love. Because we have joy in the inward place of our heart. See, it has to be utterly defined in our generation. Because we're all looking for a license to get by and get away with. Go ahead and have your license. You might still get into heaven, but he desires more for you. He wants friendship with you. The issue is friendship. And that's what we need to begin to ask. It's not so much about can I, will I, is he going to judge me? The issue is, does this create and cultivate friendship with God? That should be the defining quality. So we find Finney in this place of wrestling before the Lord. And as he was wrestling, there was touches. And like literally one person would end up coming kind of like, I heard about your prayer meeting. I heard you guys are getting up at 5 a.m., one person would end up getting touched. You want to know what happened was? He called the community to pray at 5 a.m. Nobody came. That's not real awakening, is it, now? Nobody's coming to prayer. He literally walked the community knocking on people's doors at 5 a.m. Get your butt out of bed. So until the Holy Spirit came, Finney was coming. Finney was coming until... 
on your door. <laughs> Get your butt out of bed. <laughs> no, but if you look at these people's lives, they entered into a place of truly wrestling. They entered into the place of the spirit of prayer and availing themselves to it. And then you actually find a progressive place. And you know what the progressive place was? Progressively being possessed by the spirit of God. Until wherever they went, the presence of God was released in such measure, in such magnitude, that hotels and taverns would come under the influence of it. The reports of entire cities under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit moves in partnership, in correspondence with man. He does not move apart from man. You will never find a move of God that came without either an individual or a company of people ushering in his presence. And that's what we're here for. We're not here for a social club. We're not here even to really make you feel good. If the Holy Spirit makes you feel good, I love that. But some days he might want to convict you. And I'm okay with that too. Because I care more about your soul being transformed into the image of Christ and being a faithful witness to speak and declare truth than I care about winning friends. That's not what I've been sent here for. I've been sent here for an allegiance with Jesus Christ. That truth would be declared. And hopefully we would be a company of people that are found faithful in Cambridge. That there could be an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. See, I don't really care about anything else. I don't care about growing our church to 500. I don't really care about buildings. I care about New England coming alive with the prophecies that have been spoken for years and generations. And if that means a praying community of three, or if that means a praying community of 3,000, I've been ruined with the dream of God's heart for New England. And I believe that those of you that are here, you're here because you've been ruined with the same dream. I believe that you're here. And you know what? You might not even know it intellectually or logically. But, but New England has a history of revival and missionary sending. Governor Winthrop, when he was aboard the Arabella, he penned that Boston would be a city set upon a hill and a light to all peoples, a stepping stone for the gospel of the nations of the earth. And guess what? That dream still lives in the heart of God. He never gave up on that dream. But I believe he's looking for a company of people to take up his dream and to contend for his, the release of his promises in the earth. And that's what you, God has brought you to Boston for. The nations of the earth are not amassing themselves here for a degree. They might think that's what they're coming for. But they're amassing themselves here because it's an influential hub that God desires to release his fire that in one generation the gospel would be preached to every nation in the earth. And I believe that's exactly why every individual that is here, and I want to challenge us, I want to encourage us, I want to provoke us that as a company of people that we would position ourselves in the place of prayer and not move until we see the release of his promises. Why don't we all stand to our feet and close out with prayer. God, we just thank you, Father, for...